We all know there's serious questions surrounding the origins of COVID-19 and the so-called vaccines. This is part two of a four-part series. Professor Edward J. Ted Steele is a molecular and cellular immunologist, geneticist and microbiologist and the author of six books and over 100 scientific research papers. Professor Steele's scientific background qualifies him to comment both on the performance of the vaccines for COVID-19 as well as the origin of COVID-19. Professor, thank you very much for joining us once again. Good morning. Thank you very much. We heard a lot about mystery COVID cases in Victoria. Can you tell us what a mystery case is? Very briefly, because everything we're going to talk about, presumably, is going to depend on mystery cases. A mystery case is an ignition of an infection. These are the sort of words I use, where a person comes down with a cold, goes and gets a PCR test, turns out to be PCR positive, and then then they... Then uh, in places like Victoria, which I know a lot about, which despite all the political chaos, there's a lot of transparency that I can figure out. There's also a, a opaqueness in the data. But a mystery case here is one where the contact tracers have established there's no person they could have possibly got the infection from through all the questioning and movement checks. But the key for me is not just that. That's, that's probably correct what they've done there. Because, you know, they've got conscientious people who are experienced that are doing the tracking. But the key is that when they do the genomic sequence on the 30,000 nucleotide or genetic lettered length virus, they can't find a link, a genomic link with any known cluster. You know, clusters, for example, in, you know, families that are going up or nursing homes or whatever, you know, there are established clusters or even someone else. They just can't find a link, and that's called genomically unlinked. And then when, do, when, when those two sets go together, contact tracing unlinked, genomically unlinked, and put into the public domain, then you can believe it. That is a mystery case. Daniel Andrews, despite all these other faults, he's playing a very incredibly clever game for a dictator. What he's doing is he's putting out there the truth as he sees it, and he doesn't care if people, you know, might, you know, uh, you know, worry about it. But the mystery cases are the truth as he sees it, and are all the reasons why he's locking the state down all the time. And as the mystery cases rise, the ones that I, he, he can't track, he, he does two things: he blames Victorians for unhealthy, very bad behaviours that they're not socially distancing, they're having parties, they're getting together. And then, and then, and then he gets even harder. He puts a ring of steel around the city, and then he does other things. Do you see what I'm getting at? Mm. And some mystery cases are driving it in Victoria. How do they we? And they're also driving it in New South Wales. Make no mistake, mm. but they're they're more opaque in in mm. New South Wales. But in in Victoria, the mystery cases drives their total behaviour. Him and Brett Sutton, the chief health officer, and the jab and t- uh, PCR. Uh, testing commander, the one Jerome Weimar, you know, straight out of the Goebbels playbook, that fellow, they're constantly talking about mystery cases. Now, they comprise 40 to 50% of all cases. So this is a very serious problem in, in, in Victoria. And, you know, when this is, when, as these were ramping up, Daniel Andrews put a ring of steel around Melbourne on, you know, he, he just made it worse for the city. A ring of steel around Melbourne on, on about August the 11th. 
He brought in nightly curfews, you know, wartime conditions. He threatened people on the TV camera for they can't have this, they can't do that. And what happened 10 days later? The whole town of Shepparton, 190 kilometres north of Melbourne and south of the border, which is sealed by drone surveillance, the army and, and, and the border, the whole town of, of Shepparton went up in a string of mystery cases. Have mystery cases emerged anywhere else around the world? Well, <laughs> the first big mystery case, and I, you know, I've sent you this figure, that, you know, the figure of, of the case incidents, uh, the case incidents uh, COVID map for China through January 2020 last year, when the first, when this whole pandemic first started, as incidents by what happened in China, there were million. There were look, my reading of all the data is there were tens to hundreds of millions of infected Chinese across China with a centre of gravity at Wuhan. No question of that. That 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 particular Johns Hopkins case incident map is extraordinary in, in, in the reach across China. So how did that happen? And it happened suddenly, by the way. Now, in, as you know, in the in our previous discussion, uh, we, we discussed the, the strike, the viral Latin meteorite strike from space, uh, over over China on the night of October the 11th and the, the drifting down of the dust cloud, the viral Latin dust cloud, and it literally blanketed the entire country of China. There were millions of mystery cases in China. So, yeah, answer to your first question, do they exist elsewhere? Of course they do, but we don't normally think of it like that, that they're all mysteries. But, of course, in each ignition, that is a mystery ignition, there would be transferred to close family members. And if they're in, if in the family, the, the grandma and grandpa also live with the family, which they do in many of these uh, countries and communities, then these elderly comorbid, immune defenceless people are going to replica, uh, replicate the virus to trillions of particles. There's going to be amplification. And we already knew in China, we already knew that the elderly were vulnerable. You see, in that first month, January last year, there was transparency and honesty coming out of China. There really was. China developed the first genomic sequence, which we rely on now to detect COVID. They detected all the, all the, the first PCR tests, which we still use now to detect COVID. They helped out in all sorts of ways. But they also demonstrated, as a totalitarian communist society, how they could shuffle hundreds of millions of people and lock them down easily and taught the world how to do it in a, in a strange sort of way, certainly taught Daniel Andrews. And the thing is that in that first month, we could actually see and believe a lot of things that happened. Now, at the end of that month, a very significant event happened. It was on the 6th of February. There was a telephone link-up between Donald Trump and President Xi. And in that telephone link-up, Xi was explaining to Trump what happened in China. He was explaining that it comes in from the air. He also said it's not just what you touch, it's coming in from the air. Now, how do we know that? We know that because Bob Woodward wrote a book. He interviewed, it's called Rage. He interviewed uh, Donald, Donald Trump on the 7th or 8th of February. And all Trump could think about was what key, sorry, what she had told him. And he, and he told Bob Woodward, what, just that, what I've just said that it's coming in from the air and it's not just from the things that you touch. That was an incredibly revealing and prescient remark or, or statement that Trump made. Of course, subsequent to that, 
Trump was doubling down on the China virus, alienated China completely, and then China closed up completely. So with all any honesty evaporated at that at that point. But in that moment, a moment of truth emerged. It's the sort of thing that, like I have to do here in Victoria, pick out you know the nuggets of truth dropping from the table of Daniel Andrews and his chief health officer by their announcement. I, I, can, I can figure it out, and my colleagues on my wider research team can figure it out, but for a lot of people, it's difficult. But nevertheless, that confirms what we thought. The Chinese knew they had a massive viral contamination problem throughout their country, centred on Wuhan, centred on their industrial heartland, but massive on scale. You see... Everything they did confirmed it. Mm. Since we knew they produced the genomic sequence and had had all the PCR testing, why were they out in the street? Why were men out in the street in moon suits in China during January dousing down the environment? Spray guns, machinery, all sorts of things like that. Now, they certainly weren't dousing down bats and pangolins and getting rid of that, but they were getting something from the environment that they knew was contaminating the environment. The South Koreans were doing the same things within a few weeks in February. They were doing the same things. And even even parts of Japan, were, particularly the South Koreans, were using the, the, uh, the, the Chinese method of environmental cleaning. Now, we, of course, do it ourselves now, but not to the extent that the Chinese were doing it during January. So that was a signal that the Chinese Communist Party knew the perimeter of the viral contamination. They knew it was throughout China. But more importantly for them, the big serious political problem, I'm sorry, I have to, I have to spill over to these sort of inferences because they explain behaviour. The, spill, the spillover into, the, into political decision-making was, was Wuhan is the centre of China's literally miracle, industrial miracle to the world. It's industrial heartland where every widget and good imaginable gets produced and exported to the world. And here they had evidence that their entire industrial heartland was contaminated with a virus <laughs> that was causing, you know, them problems. Um, so they had to they had to do what they did. They, with a, a week or two, they, they built two huge 10,000-bed hospitals. They shuffled and clamped down the population. They locked everything down. But the scale of the problem from my assessment and Professor Chanda Ramasenghi and Reg Gwazinski's assessment in China was that the whole country was exposed on scale. There would have been massive infections all over the country and therefore massive opportunity for the most important event to take place, mm. herd immunity, mm. right? Herd immunity on a, in hundreds of millions of Chinese. That's a very important event. So just to, just, to, just to finish off this bit on mysteries, it did happen in uh, China on massive scale. It also says that um, that uh, that there were some cases in Japan that were mysteries, and in the early and mid February in the United States on the West Coast there were some mystery cases. But that was the last time that that we would talk about mysteries. Dr. Anthony Fauci actually, you know, defined them as community transmissions without a patient X. And, and they saw them on the west coast of the uh, United States. But since then, no one in the northern hemisphere infected zones gets carried or, you know, gets, uh, you know, carries on about uh, mystery cases the way we do in Australia for the simple reason our epidemics here, even the current ones, are so tiny compared with the northern hemisphere 
literally a hundred to a thousand fold less intense that they they simply could not track every every patient down the way we can here in Australia. You see, that's why they're believable. The mystery cases in Australia are actually believable because they're linked to, you know, the tracing and they're also linked to the genome. That's really important, valuable epidemiological inf- inf- information. Mm. Look, there's divided opinion on the origin of the virus. What does science actually tell us? And does this better explain the patterns of spread around the world, including what's happening today in Australia? Yeah, a number of issues there. As I discussed before, the the explosion of tens of millions of cases in China arising exponentially, those going up in long tenfold steps in numbers through January in, in China and all over the country, by the way, at the same time, that's the important thing. That is incredibly difficult to explain by facile uh, animal jump theories or Wuhan lab virus leak theories, you know, the sort of thing that um, these uh, fantasists with the Australian newspaper Shari Marks and, and News Limit are pushing on a big scale. That's just pure Cold War fantasy stuff, conspiracy theory stuff. None of those theories explain the massive ignitions across China. Now, we've got to get it real here. We're talking about a country the size of the USA or Australia in landmass, all erupting at the same time. It couldn't be person-to-person spread. Come on, we've got to be, you know, when people start questioning, you've got to start looking at the scale. Now, um, uh, on, I discussed in, the, in my previous discussion with you that the, the odds against the animal jump theory from the bat to human or bat pangolin to human were are just impossible odds. But let, let me just sort of flesh that out again and just make it clear that we're talking about things that just couldn't have happened. From all the, the known genomically isolated, uh, all the genomic se- sequences for all the isolated uh, COVID variants from bats and pangolins and everything, going back to the first SARS uh, outbreak, there's lots of sequences now. The closest member of that set that looks anything like COVID-19 is 96.2% similar. Now, the odds of that actually translates to about 1,100 differences across 30,000 a nucleotide genome, that is, you know, the genetic letter genome, 1,100 differences all occurring on a particular type in exactly the right spot to get a COVID-19 match. You see, now that, look, molecular evolutionists don't take it seriously. They know that's impossible. You know, serious people like Ed Holmes, uh, Andrew Rambo, all of the all of the people pushing the theory. By the way, know it's impossible, but they push it because it's the only one that's uh, you know politically acceptable in the mainstream of science. But it's impossible; it couldn't have happened. You know what the odds are for that one? The hundred, you know, the thousand occurring ones, a ten to the six hundred eighty-four. That's a massive astronomically mm. astronomical number mm. but even even if you're generous to these people and say there's only a one percent did say they're 99 percent similar that 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 translates to 300 differences all happening in the right spot in the genome and that comes to 10 to the 184 now why are those numbers they're massive numbers why are they important well they're only <coughs> of the order of 10 to the 84 hydrogen atoms the most dominant nucleus in the in the known universe so 
the, you know, the odds of these jumps happening from animals outstrip all the molecular and statistical resources of the known universe many times over. It's just impossible. But the lab leak, you know, the human engineered massive pandemic in China, you know, that's the one that gets all the traction. But even if you go with that, you then have to deal with another fact. The massive global pandemic in, with Spanish flu, we didn't know about viruses but back then. We certainly weren't engineering viruses in the lab. But jumping forward to the present, you still got to explain. Let me just put that, put that map up again. You still have to explain this massive ignition across China by a lab leak from the Wuhan lab. Mm. And there's no attempt to do that. Shari Markson, let me make it clear, is irresponsible. I'm talking emphatically and naming people because they have to be named and they have to be exposed. I'm happy to debate this with her in the public domain on her Sky TV show. It's just nonsense what she's spreading in her book and on the front page of The Australian every day. Mm. Mm. So, So we're left with our explanation that it came from space, massive viral atom contamination across the, you know, the country, that, that is a rational explanation because we then can explain that the residue that was left in the stratosphere, how that got distributed to the world, you know, in the 40-degree north line, you know, with the other distributions. And we can also explain how viral plumes from, say, the China outbreaks, particularly the, the Wuhan, how they can get transmitted, transported around the world these massive viral clouds around the world, a world at the in the lower level level prevailing winds, you know, across the Pacific to the United States, and we can also understand. I'm going to jump forward now to that the Indian plume, which this is a massive eruption this year in India, and our estimates we've we've published on all this. By the way, everything I'm talking about we've published on. The Indian plume produced. Conservative estimates, 10 to the 18th, 10 to the 20 virions. They're just conservative because almost certainly more than that in a massive plume. Now, they're huge numbers. You know, I, I was giving you cosmic numbers before, but these are big numbers. You know, we're talking about trillions and trillions of virus particles, trillions multiplied by trillions of virus particles in the in the uh, um, in the lower atmosphere, you know, the troposphere getting distributed around by the various prevailing winds. Now, the, the strikes here in Australia, in Victoria and New South Wales, but not, interestingly enough, in Western Australia, South Australia, Queensland or Tasmania, these strikes came through the prevailing winds down from, from India, through the Delta variants, let's say, yes, let, let's use their term, down the prevailing winds down the, uh, the east coast of Africa to the Southern Ocean, striking South Africa, and Kenya on the way, and Madagascar. You can actually see the blips along in, in our in our paper. We've we've outlined all this, and then it comes up from the Southern Ocean through the Roaring Forties, you know, forty degrees south line, west to east, and then comes up into Victoria through a southwest arc to, to contaminate Victoria with uh, these viral dust clouds that are brought down by the rain in a very predictable pattern. And I'm going to, I'll, you know, I'll deal with this again shortly, but the pattern that was generated in, two, in the 2020 epidemic in Pretoria is almost identical to what's happened now, except we've got the big Shepparton outbreak and the Ring of Steel, and that adds a, a bit more scientific analytical power to our, our conclusions. But the point I'm trying to make is that, that 
these viral Latin dust clouds, whether they're coming from the cometary dust, which is in the first year of this pandemic, to the human plume, human passage plume virus in the second year, which is happening now, they all come from the air, they're brought to ground by rain, and unsuspecting victims rubbing up against the environment through stroking their pets, they're taking the washing off the line, put rubbing the hand along a railing, uh, working with on the grass or with their with their uh, with their with their plants in the garden. Pick it up. Now, why this is important is that there's no way social distancing, wearing masks, can have any impact on the ignition of mystery cases in a, a situation like that. It can't. Logic tells you it can't. And even if wearing the mask might protect you during the actual infall, because these dust clusters would be quite big and likely to be stopped by a mask. But by the way, masks do not stop separated, more individual virions, because the pore sizes are, are too big. But certainly dust clusters could, could, be, yeah, could be stopped. But even if, even, if, even if that was the case, even if, um, you know, the mask had been for or was stopping it, people would then take the mask, see the outside of the mask would be covered in the viral Latin dust. Mm. The person would pick up, take the mask off, immediately pick up the virus on their fingertips and then touch their nose. Mm. It's totally, look, everything to do about the lockdown from social distancing uh, uh, mask is nonsense. We've got to get, look, the reason I'm uh, exasperated and angry is I actually understand the data and so do my colleagues. We actually understand what's going on. It's pure nonsense what they're doing. Now, how are they going to reverse this stampede of nonsense? That's the problem mm. now. So, look, uh, you know, I have, a, I, have a, I have a few other things that I'd like to say, but I, I think I'll just leave it, leave it, let people think about what I've, what I've just said mm. at that point at this moment. There's a lot to uh, digest, but while the health authorities are dialing up, as we can see, hysteria, to get more people vaccinated, is there evidence that the virus may be waning? Indeed, yeah. is there any evidence the vaccine actually works to protect people from the COVID-19 infection and then transmission to others? Right. Let's 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 do deal with the the two mm. in order. Very important questions. Mm. Very important questions. Practical questions for us. First of all. The virus is weakening. No question in my mind, analysing human plumed, globally transported viruses. And I'm talking about the UK mutant. I'm talking about Delta. And we've got to be careful here. Delta is a range of variants. It's just a, a euphemism for the Indian plume. Because I know that because I've looked at the, what, what they were concerned about with the, with the fourth wave here in uh, uh, May, 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 June of Victoria, and they always were talking about a, a range of sequences, and they were also doing it in New South Wales as well. But they, but when the when the news report went out, you know, the jab and uh, uh, PCR testing commander kept talking about Delta. When mm. we're talking about a range of different variants from the plume in India, anyway, let's just let's just deal with this concept of attenuation towards the end of every epidemic. There's a host-parasite interaction going on, and the you know the the virus gets pa passage through human beings. It mutates a bit, probably a little bit, uh, not as much as what people think, by the way, because the virus has very strict rules of how it's allowed to replicate with its uh, haplotypes and its secondary structure. But the point is, if you actually look at the sequence of the of Delta or the UK mutant, 
look at their sequence and, look, and compare them with Wuhan, the first thing you notice, well, we notice, Dr. Lindley and I notice, is that they're, they're sharing the common haplotypes we'd already described in the first six months of last year, which we published. That's the first point. But they have a few more changes. Instead of, you know, a typical human person-to-person uh, -person spread, say, accumulating six to eight changes, they have about 20 changes compared with the Wuhan sequence. And we've got to get this clear too. All of these viruses are 99.91% similar to the Wuhan sequence. We've got, to, we've got to get that clear in our heads. Now, what do these, what do these genetic changes look like in the virus? To me, as a geneticist and as a, a scientist, I'm working on mutations with many years of experience, and I, I have to re-emphasize, I have to emphasize these points because, because people think that I probably don't know what I'm talking about. But if you look at, if you line these sequences up, these virus sequences up of UK mutant and Delta against the UN reference sequence you see that they do have changes, and some of them are quite complex. Now, normally, particularly when looking at those changes in protein coding regions, because that's what most of these regions are, you think, well, that should, that should really set the virus back a bit. That would cripple it, cripple its ability to replicate properly, because there's quite a few of them, you know, and they're quite complex. And you think, well, yeah, I think, well... My assessment, my assessment, looking at those sequences, both the UK mutant and the Delta, is this that the that the virus is on its last last legs. Mm. It is in fact attenuated. But do I have any independent evidence for, for it? That's important. It's all very you know well for me to think that. Do I have any independent evidence? Well, the independent evidence comes first for the UK mutant. I don't know whether you, whether people watching this show or whether you remember, thinking back to January this year. The UK mutant was coming to Australia. Remember the screaming yep. headline from the yep. Australian? Yep. It was multiple screaming headlines, by the way. It came into Perth. It came into Adelaide. It came into Brisbane. It came into Melbourne. What was the immediate reaction in Western Australia, South Australia and Brisbane? They locked the place down. Remember that? They locked mm. down. The trouble is they locked us down after all the putative spreading events had taken place. Remember, the, these people came in, mixed with people in airport lounge, went to a hotel, mixed with people. There were all sorts of contacts. There were hundreds of contacts in all those cities. Now, if this was a rampaging, virulent virus, virulent common cold virus, because we've got to start putting this in perspective, we're talking about the common, common cold here. We're not talking about the Spanish flu. But if it was, if it was rampaging and virulent, the hundreds and hundreds of contacts in all those cities, independent entries into Australia, you would have expected them to have hundreds and hundreds of cases. Nothing happened. You remember that too? Mm. It didn't spread. Mm. The close contact it spread to, like the common cold does, mm -hmm. but after those, all those fleeting contacts in restaurants, uh, uh, counters, in, in uh, airport lounges, buses, trains, didn't spread. So we've got to get real here. And I'm, I'm exasperated angry again because people aren't getting real. They're not looking at the data. Now, Professor Collingham, the epidemiologist from the ANU, Professor Peter Collingham, actually admitted that. One of the few truthful things he said in public, he confirmed in an interview with The Australian, it's on the record, and we published his the, verbatim his, his interview, he, he confirmed that the UK mutant didn't spread in Australia. Just confirmed it. Didn't try to explain it, but mm. confirmed it. Very important. Mm. Now, Delta. 
Have you noticed something, Mike, very interesting about Victoria and New South Wales at the moment? Cases are very high. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Deaths are very low. Have you noticed that? Extremely yep. low. Now, this, this is part of the explanation of why we could call this a common cold virus. These, these variants, all these viral variants, are dangerous for a very small fraction of immune defenceless elderly comorbid people. I put them at a, a, a number of about 0.1% of that order of all infections, of all cases, COVID-19 cases, 0.1%. That means 99.9% of people get rid of this virus just by their natural innate immune response. Forget about... A, adaptive acquired immunity, people are not talking about that either. I'm really very, very frustrated that all my other scientific colleagues and immunological colleagues, the senior ones, Peter Doherty, John Shine, all, all, all of these people that should know better are not pointing these facts out. This is all textbook immunology I'm talking about here with innate immunity and the, the mucosal immune system. Only a very small fraction are vulnerable and we look back at previous cold and flu seasons of yesteryear, it's the same proportion that were, were, were vulnerable. It's nothing different between now and yesterday. The big difference is, is the hysteria, the fact that this virus is being tracked like no other virus in history has, the number of tests. So we have all these cases and hardly any deaths. Uh, Alan Jones got very angry over this issue. I watched his Sky program. He's since been tempered and toned down a bit with very good reason. He got it right. The, mm. the, 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 the hysteria here is beyond belief. Now, um, all, I, all, I, all I want to say is that there is a very small fraction of our community that are vulnerable. Now, let's just have a look at those other, other curves I've, I've sent you. If you read the Australian just for the numbers, and that's all I read it for now because the rest of it's unreadable, I just get the numbers and, and plots. Because for that, when I when I have data in front of me, I can do, draw deductions from my previous experience for analysing Victoria in 2020, and I know what those curves mean. You see flares and spikes on the rising side of these curves. Those flares, what are they? Those flares, to me, this is, the, this is what makes logical sense, given what we know about the virus, the way it replicates, and everything else about it. In a, th- a three-generation, large three-generation family in the western suburbs of Melbourne or Sydney, where grandma and grandpa live with the family, or in an, a geriatric ward, or in an aged care facility, a nursing home, a mystery, a mystery case ignition can bring the disease to the family or the group. Okay? It, I'm assuming that the elderly people aren't out there wandering around all the time. What happens is they're asymptomatic or just a mild cold and all the other members of the family might catch it and for them it's a mild cold. But the people that really catch it are the immune defenseless elderly comorbids. The virus gets in those people and amplifies to millions and trillions of particles. They really do throw out the aerosol. So everybody that comes in contact with them, with the family, healthcare workers or the medical staff, they're all going to become PCR positive. So that's what those flare-ups are. The super flare-ups are all of the cases that are tending to the people that are suffering, that are likely to be vulnerable, the 0.1%. Now, um, 
that that's got to be kept in mind as you're analysing what's going on here. And this is this is occurring repeatedly now. I can see it occurring occurring repeatedly. Mm. So, so so the PCR test. Just before I get to vaccination, the PCR test uh, is. Uh, you, you, you've got to understand it's very sensitive, it's incredibly reliable, but in most people, it takes about, you see, it's, it starts off this way. We, we have to understand what, what it's doing. I'm not, I'm not going to go into the biochemistry, but I'll explain mathematically the way it works. You start off with a single sequence of the virus, and the, the PCR test allows you to amplify that, you know, to make a copy of that virus, and then make a copy. So it goes two. So you have two, then four, then eight, then 16, then 32, 64, 128, 256, 512, 1024. You notice it's a two-fold series of amplification. Mm. So at 10 cycles, you've got a 1,000 more copies of the original template that you were trying to, to detect. After another 10 cycles to 20, you've got a million. You see, it's an incredibly sensitive and powerful technique. It's got to be used responsibly and, re and reliably. It really does. And we must have the PCR cycle number attached to every false, sorry, every positive case. Why is that important? It's because PCR cycle number will tell you this. If you have to do many, many, many cycles, up to 20 or more, to actually pick up a signal, with, you know, to decide whether that patient is positive, then you're dealing with a recovered patient, an asymptomatic patient, a mild common cold. You're dealing with 99.9% .9 of the population. Do you, do you see what I'm, what mm. I'm getting at? Mm. But in the, in the vulnerable, those numbers go through the roof. So that, that they would have a very low cycle number positive result. You see, just like in the blood glucose level, where, where we need to know what the blood glucose range is, above and below, we need to have the same quantitative information attached to it a PCR test so we can make a decision about them. My bet is, and I'm willing to I'm willing to bet a considerable amount on this, that 95% of more of all these cases in New South Wales and Victoria are of that type, recovered, uh, subclinical, asymptomatic, mild common colds. That's what they are. So we are now fighting a massive pandemic of the common cold that's not affecting people in a way that we would never have done in the past. So let's get to the vaccine. There's a lot of talk about the vaccine, how it's not working, and a lot of evidence that we know have that we know now. Whole countries are coming down despite vaccination. Whole teams of sportsmen jetting around all suddenly get all been doubly vaccinated, then suddenly come down with COVID. There are in the, the cases for me that are really important, the reason why they're bringing in vaccination is they're trying to protect that 0.1% of the immune defenseless elderly comorbids. The last thing you want to do to them is vaccinate them. Mm. But that's what they're trying to do. They're actually, you, you, you've got to give them therapies to get through the respiratory crisis like prednisolone, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, dexamethasone, all these things that all the experts know allow them to get through the respiratory uh, the respiratory crisis certainly not vaccination, but let's just look at the just look at the vaccines. So they're not protecting against the virus. They can't stop transmission, and we now know from many reports. It's not stopped from me, but from people like the people you've interviewed, Professor Delores Cahill, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough. We know they're positively dangerous as well. They're causing they're causing 
health damage on a scale that was unimaginable. It would never have happened in the past. Mm. Think, mm. think back to our youth or just a few years ago. Just, you know, when, when I had to travel overseas when I was in my late 20s, early, early, early 30s, I, I, I had to get the, the smallpox vaccine just to get, a, you know, to take up a job in, in Canada. And there was, there was, um, I never experienced any adverse effect. In fact, there was never any talk of adverse effects on the scale that we talk about now mm-hmm. because they didn't happen. The vaccines were tested, were safety tested. They're being safety tested now in a mass clinical trial, and this should have been stopped a long time ago. So, look, the vaccines are a dud. They don't protect you, will not, will not, will not prevent transmission and are positively dangerous. And I want to hear Professor Peter Doherty, Professor John Shine, the head of the Australian Academy of Science, and I'm demanding that they go public now and tell the truth because they haven't been telling the, telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Now, I have visited them and all their, causative, all their colleagues on in uh, email uh, broadcasts, and I've been quite emphatic about it. They are, they are doing enormous damage because they are the titular heads of science in Australia. Morrison's resting on them for the advice, and the epidemiologists are feeding off them, you know, to think they're on the right track. The epidemiologists have got no idea where it's coming from because, you know, they don't even consider it coming in from the air in a viral lead and dust cloud. We are in a crisis, mm. so we've got to start telling the truth. Medicine, first rule of medicine is you do no harm. The first rule of science is you tell the truth and you don't lie and cheat. And both of those have been torn up on a gargantuan scale. And in Australia, we're in our own little bubble and we're doing things that are just purely mad. They're even The rest of the world that's suffered badly from all their own madness looks at Australia and thinks we're even crazier. Mm. Uh, Professor, they say that once a penal colony, always a penal colony. <laughs> possibly. Anyway, look, uh, look, I, I, look, I'm, I'm not, I don't resile from anything I've just said. Mm. I'm happy. I'm happy to bait Doherty, John Shine, uh, Nikolai, um, Petrovsky. Yeah, Petrovsky. Any of these mm. and all of the groups that have been, I'm happy to debate them in public scientific debate. Everything I've said is based on evidence. That's mm. the important thing. So I'm happy to defend it mm. in a, both a public domain, in a scientific conference, or even in a court of law. Mm. I'm happy to, to defend it because I know I'm telling the truth and I know that the evidence backs up everything I say. But let me just say one thing before we finish, Mike. We tried to get this story out into the Australian media in the first week of February last year. I was in consultation. Chandra and I had a, a big descriptive paper in our analysis just for the first month of the, of the pandemic and where it came from, from the meteorite burst and contamination across China. We, we got that into the Australian newspaper as a big article. Mm-hmm. And I was in, for a week, I was on mobile phone contact with John Lehman, the editor of The Australian, and back and forth. And he was blowing his mind, you know, the story I was giving you. Because it does, you know, most people, for most people, this is a very strange story. Mm. The trouble is he, 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 we then agreed to a number of things. He agreed that this is an alternative scientific explanation for what's happened. You know, he agreed with that. He could see it very clearly. And I said, look, I read The Australian. And the reason I'm contacting you is because the Australian's always been fair. It's always allowed alternative views to be ventilated in the public domain, particularly in the, in the political and even in other areas of science. It doesn't refrain from that. You know what? He agreed with me repeatedly. He said, OK. But then I said to him, you must not peer review me with my colleagues in Australia, like mm-hmm. Peter Doherty or some of the others, who, by the way, I know these people quite well and are quite a few other other immunologists in Australia who would like to put me on a, onto a, on a slow boat to China. I said, you mustn't peer, peer review me. 
because they'll just simply say they don't believe me. Mm. But you know what he did? At the end of the week, when I thought I had the deal sealed that the article was, was going to go in, and after showing him the evidence for the meteorite and all these maps and other stuff we had, you know what he did? He handed it over to his health writer, Natasha Robinson. And he said, she, you know, she'll look after it now. He handed it over to Natasha. Within two days, she got back and he says, Professor Steele, we're not running your story because no one believes you. None of your peers believe you. Mm. Now, the, the Australian made a decision then. and they, they have given, this is 20 months later, have given no oxygen to our story in any way. And I have tried every route to penetrate the wall. And unfortunately, all of their writers, even the ones I used to enjoy, except for one, have simply refused to do anything about it. Literally, all of them, even the ones that, who I agree with, like Chris Kenny and Steve Watterson. Mm. They actually agree with all of their chaos analysis of what's going on. But when it comes to the, the nitty-gritty, the full Monty bit, where it came from, how it's spreading, they don't want to go near it. There's been a decision made at News Limited, not only just in Australia, but also in the United States. I know that because we've tried, our co-authors have tried multiple entries in the United States as well. Wall Street Journal, The Times of London. We just can't get any oxygen. They've made a decision globally not to give this story any oxygen at all. I'm not joking. Mm. And I'm really I'm just so pleased that I'm on your show. Apart from a, one other small grade interview that I did and all our scientific people, uh, papers, hardly anyone knows this story. That there is an alternative, rational, scientific explanation of what's engulfed us and it's 180 degrees different from what we think we know. Yep. It literally is at every level, from the, from the molecular right up to the stars. I think the group think thing is a problem. I think the evidence is there, and that's a problem for them. And the best way to uh, get around that is to ignore you, uh, dismiss you, and, mm. just, and they do this to other, other issues too. Don't recognise that there is truth in what you're saying. Professor Edward Steele, uh, we'll do this again. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mike. Much appreciated. Thank you very much.